0: Hi everyone, my name is Kat Savage and I'm a professional artist, clinical hypnotherapist and wellbeing expert working with those in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing colourful people from actors to artists. People who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. The Brave Moment podcast begins now in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Probably the bravest moment, not only for my guests, but for the whole world. So let's keep talking. Have some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the show we talk with international wildlife and conservation photographer Craig Jones. His work is profoundly moving, capturing some of the world's finest images of our endangered species. His photographs have been featured in many publications such as the National Geographic magazine and he is considered to be one of the very top photographers from around the world, working ethically to preserve and present our global wildlife and promote awareness for its conservation. A humble man who has never entered an award for personal recognition, preferring instead to turn his attention towards helping local indigenous people, charities and fellow photographers... Craig tells us about his journey from trauma to healing through his photography and the importance of the ethical practice and conservation he hopes to promote through his crucial work. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to one of our planet's finest photographers, Craig Jones. Craig, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, uh, Kat. Nice to meet you. Virtually meet you, should I say.
0: <laughs> so you are a wildlife and conservation photographer, and um, you've been doing this for quite a while now, but I'd like to take you back in time to your childhood. Tell us why nature and wildlife were so important to you as a child.
1: Growing up, I had a wonderful mother and a quite an aggressive, abusive father. And home life, I learned very early on that I sort of lived in fear a little bit, which is uh, is something that I picked up very early on. And uh, I, I had a great fascination with nature from from a very early age. From my first book from Woolworths with a tiger run, and then tracing and drawing, and then keeping aviary birds and other stuff. So, for me, nature was innocence it was a something that I, I look back that would help me would you know I escaped the countryside it was a calming mechanism I didn't understand a lot about mental health and other stuff that we, we do now but even in those days the late 70s early 80s nature was a was a was a, was, a, was a great form of sort of inspiration for me and just like wow and just you know Attenborough I think the, the life of birds life of plants those would do in the circles but so so nature sort of was instilled into me by my late mother. She taught me about the circle of life, where my food was from. I was always asking questions. Um, if my mother worked late and my father was at home, I would go to a nearby countryside park. I would go to somewhere in the country just to do a bit of bird watching or sketching just until my mother was home. So I'm lucky that I understood love. I'm lucky that I understood uh, nature and he understood that i was shown the difference between right and wrong empathy and beauty my mum had cancer when i was 12 so it was breast cancer so she lost some of her hair she had a suntan and in the 80s it was you know kind of really prehistoric treatment i think not prehistoric but it wasn't what we've got today so it knocked knocked her about a bit i became very protective and very sort of like looking after her And then three years, we had three years of peace. And then three years later, it came back and the uh, cancer went from her left breast to her lymph gland under an arm she'd always explain this to me because I've always been an inquisitive child what's this mum and what's that and how do you make gravy how do you make custard so I was kind of you know I think I was compensating really because I wanted to know my environment really and I wanted to understand Um, I may sound very sort of clever now of this but as a child I didn't know it's just looking back going through therapy speaking about different traumas of what children do we, we sort of overcompensate I was trying to protect my mum and I couldn't the cancer came back when I was 15 and within a state of a few months she she became uh, blind she lost her voice she became bedbound. we had a district nurse coming in two to three times a week for you know uh, bathing cleaning uh, then I just stayed off school. It wasn't planned. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't told. I was just often on my own with it. My brother was sort of kept out of it. He was thirteen, and I would feed my mum. I would put the spoon at the side of her mouth. I would uh, twice. I've put her on a commode, and sometimes I've smelt that smell in, in adult life that, that, that smell of death. And because she was, she didn't open her eyes, and she couldn't speak, and the cancer was getting distributed all around her body. I was frightened. I was fearful, and I didn't know what to do. But looking back, I think that's when really sort of childhood was erased, and I I wanted to protect her, but I couldn't. And then she was she was her fiftieth birthday was coming up. She she made it downstairs, uh, step by step by step, you know, on a bum. And then uh, she was fifty. And then four weeks after. Um, she passed away. I joined the army and I left my hometown and I just threw everything into being in the army. So I think childhood was always put on hold really,
0: mm. Just listening to it, I mean, it's heartbreaking from, from my perspective, obviously, having to think and imagine, you know, you as, as a young child having to deal with such weight on your shoulders. Um, but I mean, the fact that you found some solace in nature, I, I mean, how, how did nature teach you to be strong? How did you use what you were finding outside of the household to sort of keep us in a sanctuary when you were inside yours?
1: Yeah, I I had a I've still got it. I, I I should send you a picture of it. I think you've seen it on Facebook where you follow me. An eighth birthday present of a animal world book. And and, and then those days there wasn't really a great deal of photographic magazines, should we say, or things were I think things in the late seventies and eighties, especially where I lived with the coal mines, Thatcher decimated where we lived and closed all the coal mine down and everybody all of a sudden was on school meals or desperate parcels. So um there wasn't a great deal of you know fancy magazine so I, I had this book animal world and on the front was a tiger to the side was a an orangutan and then the inside was a golden eagle and a barn owl and i help all those uh, apart from the golden eagle i help all those now charities and have always been fascinating so when when she brought me this book, she instilled in me about nature. I was always fascinated. I was always pressing flowers, always bringing owl pellets back to shrieks of, get there off the table, you're not having that on the table. So <laughs> i get some old newspapers out and some gloves and borrow her tweezers. I, I, you know, you can't borrow those tweezers. So I was always fascinating finding eggshells, finding old nests, and sort of making displays. And then when I was 12, my mum let me have a bird aviary. So we we, we, we had a shed and, I, and there was an aviary outside, and I used to breed zebra finches. So,
0: wow.
1: Yeah, there's a picture on my Facebook of me with my top off. I don't know what I've got my top off for at the age of 12. <laughs> and, and that's a picture of my aviary. And I used to breed and just study zebra finches. And I learned very early on that Darwin did a. Um, I don't know what the, the correct word is, but uh, uh, an investigation to finches and their beaks and how they altered. There's a fancy name for it, but I don't know where it was. Uh, I don't really, it is Capri. It used to, to do with the Galapagos. And there were several different species of finches and all their beaks were thicker, smaller, thinner. And it just fascinated me. Finches still fascinate me today. Goldfinch, bullfinch, chaffinch, you know, common birds often that live amongst us that we don't sort of give, give any attention to. So I was fascinated with finches. So at that time in the 80s zebra finches were quite popular they were a beautiful bird from native australia they got a fantastic little call i had the gray pair and the fawn pair and i bred them and i looked after them and often no you know i didn't go into the house i was struggling with homework and i would often sit in, in this shed and watch me birds so all the time my mom really sort of encouraged me to get close to nature to understand through books, through birds and avery, and then buying me some binoculars and, and letting me join the Young Ornithologist Club at 12. 12 was really a pivotal year. I didn't realise until I looked back, you know, I joined the Ornithologist Club at 12. That's the the version of the RSVB Young Explor- Explorers. Now you get a Kestrel badge and a, and a golden badge that I used to put on my uh, fake wax wax jacket should we say because in those days nobody really could afford a proper wax jacket but <laughs> we got one from the market and I got some big binoculars so she encouraged me for that so I was in the Young Ornithologist Club I kept zebra finches and I'd go off to Martin Mirror and days out with Young Ornithologist Club so she really encouraged me with nature. She understood where my food was from. We always used to try and eat fresh. So she learned me and I didn't understand where this was coming from, but I was just literally like a piece of paper just soaking it all up. So nature from a very young age was not presented to me because I, I always found it fascinating, but was you know, my mum would really help me to get involved with it. And I first saw a dipper when I was twelve. And it's part of the Peak District. I used to get there on a couple of Buzzies and go there and draw and i thought it was a a a tame bird i never knew where a dipper was i thought it was a blackbird taught to dive under the water i rushed back and i consulted my bird guide. i found it was out it was a dipper so what happened then while my mum was having a treatment i often found myself going to this place sitting by this waterfall and watching the dippers Mm. often the, the, the matriarch knows about what's happening doesn't she and, and looking back and understanding nature my mum protected me from a lot of the stuff that uh, I, I saw and I was part of and that's where nature really became embroidered in my everyday life 12 13 14 studying it, school nature bird watching going out on trips but in those days, I didn't have a camera, I just had binoculars and I used to draw, I used to draw the two circles and then I did all the primary, the secondary feathers, the feet, and then you rub out the circle and see what monstrosity in my case was left. <laughs> and then I'd, then I'd do some colouring and i sort of think so. I was learning photography then without knowing and that was composition that was awareness. Um, so again, I've gone way off track. It's almost like I'm reliving this, but nature has always been a massive, part of my life, em- embroidered into the very fabric of me from my mother and my own interests, yes.
0: I th- I just find it absolutely fascinating that from that early age you were already so observational and so sort of uh, in touch with nature in a way that many children today, you know, they have the opportunity but they don't usually take it. Um, It's yeah, I mean, just listening to you now, obviously talking about your drawing um, and just taking the time and the energy to really absorb all of that information. Can you remember the day, though, when you first picked up a camera and sort of transferred those skills into what you have today?
1: I've always been interested in cameras, uh, photography, should we say. Um, and but nature has always been even through my adult when I left the army in my 20s and 30s. I used to go bird watching, and very, f- very few of my adult friends knew. And a couple did know and used to sort of take the mickey, got it up. He's going bird watching at the weekend, like joking in my 20s, bird watching, then
0: <laughs> like a train spotter, yeah,
1: yeah. So, but but I didn't look like that, you know, I'm six foot three, I'm quite manly, I look after myself, so I kind of don't really fit the criteria of a bird watching. Uh, sort of bloke on the end of a a platform with his flask and just making notes. So it kind of didn't fit. I kind of enjoyed that, you know, just sort of being under the radar and having this, not secret, but just having this little interest of mine that was just between me and nature. Mm, mm. But for me, uh, it wasn't until uh, 2007, 8, that I became really interested in digital SLRs. Uh, but i started with uh my first camera was a uh, digital uh, SLR olympus and i i saw the constraints of it and at the time i was working in rope access so i've always been into rope uh, uh, climbing I, I still climb now but this was absent into power stations and uh silos and doing wow. <laughs> and doing and doing unobtrusive um maintenance inside by dangling by a rope because obviously a lot of these things you can't get scaffolding and you can't do anything but in 2008 as you may or may not remember we had a recession and everything started to grind to a halt so i was made redundant and i just said to my 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 partner at the time you know i'd like to do this you know as as a career but it was just i've always been i've been a bit of a dreamer most of my life but i'm sort of very driven and i'm very determined Mm -hmm. so 2008, I wrote to professional photographers that some are still around today. Dear sir, my, dear sir, my name's Susan Shots, Blah blah blah. Out of the army, uh, cl- you know. Inter- interested? W- would you help me with my photography? Would you mentor me? Would you sort of look at some of my work? Uh, for about two or three weeks, uh, being made redundant meant everything. So I checked my inbox and nothing, nothing. So I turned to Vanessa at the time and I say. Nobody's got back to me. Oh, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter. So what I did, I then took my camera and my lens out and I took pictures of wood pigeons and uh, swans and stuff in the local park, all at different settings, Cats, So different apertures, different shutter speeds, different exposures. And I took pictures at every single setting in the camera And every different speed, every speed of the same subject, if it just stayed in there. And I took them back home, and I organised them all, which is a fancy word, but my Vanessa told me what that meant. And I put them all small on my screen, and I I learned how the depth of field, how the shutter speed, and how the exposure all change once you changed, you know, some simple settings on your camera. I also learned by mistake f22 and lowering the shutter speed that I'd get a blurring that if you were a painter you'd be proud of but obviously if you're photographer, it's blurred some people sort of knock it and think that's rubbish but for me a hell of a lot of my pictures sometimes birds taking off tigers running are blurred and I love this impending movement and this came about by making a mistake by going too far down the dial to f22 and then Cut a long story short, I went through all those apertures and I stuck with four F4, F5.6, F8, and F11. And then we throw the booby prize in, which was F22, which works fantastic for waders taking off, pictures on my blog at the present time, or waders blurring, tigers going through, just the blurring of their stripes. And I really love the fact that you could create that look what looked like a painting with a camera by... These settings. So that's how I learned my photography, and I checked my inbox. But the more I gained confidence using these settings, and the more I revisited these places that I'd visited in my early childhood—Lathkill Dale, Peak streets Dippers, Red Grouse, etc., cetera, etc.—and cetera, you know, Norfolk and puffins—I started to build up my own portfolio. We got a website, which was quite a lot of money. We we sort of bar- borrowed stuff off credit cards. And then I, I brought the, we brought the domain, Craig Jones Wildlife Photography, a bit long-winded, and I brought the .com just in case there was another Craig Jones out there who wanted to do it and he had the .com. <laughs> so we brought both of them for next to nothing. And then in 2009, I, it went live. I loved the dippers. I'd been having Birdwatching Magazine, and I emailed, which was very fancy back then in 2009. I thought, wow, email is really sort of quirky. <laughs> and I emailed a gentleman called Matt Merritt, Matt Merritt, the, who at the time was the features editor of the Watching magazine. And I just, I, I wanted to talk about the dippers. I didn't mention my mother. I didn't mention that they helped me through, you know, seeing my mum be poorly in chemotherapy. But I just, I've always had an affinity with dippers. Mm-hmm. But In 2009, I had an article printed called The Dippers of the Dales. And it was just some of my passion for, for the dippers. At that time, I wasn't brave enough to mention that boy at twelve and that boy at fifteen, how he used dippers, running water, water voles and other stuff to sort of compensate for what he was seeing at home. I wasn't brave enough, so I skirted around that. But in the article, we spoke about dippers, and that was my first article. And then in two thousand and nine, I got paid for that, and I felt, wow, I'm professional now. Okay, wow.
0: So would you say that that was the um, that was the picture? that you took that made you think wow i can do this for a living or or was that something very different
1: yes that was the first moment should we say that i thought that and also i also knew a lot of these places in my backyard which is the peak district so i knew where the dippers were i knew seasonal wildlife which is fantastic in this country that we have four seasons some countries that i visit only have two but we're so lucky in this country that we have Spring and summer migrants or visitors. I, I don't like using the word migrants, but summer and spring visitors, autumn and winter visitors. So, we, you know, people, ch- wildlife chooses to come to this island from Arctic tundras during the, our autumn and winter. Example, Hooper swans, Beswick swans, the, and then we have all the other sort of menagerie of birds that come in the spring and the summer, red starts, pied fire clutches, which are all over my website, two two little lovely, beautiful birds from Africa. So I I understood about seasons. My mum taught me about the seasons. She taught me about different wildlife and how it comes. So I knew the product. I knew about basically where to find stuff, where to look for, what behaviours to observe because I learned very early on, once I came across a subject, it was down to me how long that encounter would last, meaning if I made any noise, if I stood up. So I learned very early on, and if I'm honest with you again, I don't want to harp on back to this and, oh, poor him. No, no, no. Some of those things are very reminiscent to what I've said about that, that avoidance of avoiding my father in the first 16 years of my life, that avoidance. Without knowing, at the time, I was trying to avoid conflict with wildlife, staying low, staying quiet, staying out of the way, and my encounters would last long. So fast forward to the 2008-2009 period when I was made redundant and I took the plunge, I knew that I knew about nature without sounding sort of really too cocky, Cat and I built my business on local wildlife, one-to-one, meeting people, putting them at ease, having a brew, no standing on ceremony, no 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 fancy talk. And what I'd done, I showed them the template that allowed me to take my work, and I passed that information on to my clients. It was an open book. It was transparency. I learned about not keeping secrets, not just taking pictures and being a clever clogs. I passed everything that was good for me onto the client, F4. F56, F8, F11, F22, look for your light, field craft, listen, observation, field craft, stay low, don't disturb them, always have that respect. So as a template, I was passing this on, which was basically my my, my work, and that's how I learned. And then obviously I, I traveled further afield to India to the orangutans and I got my trips sort of organized everybody abroad I work directly with native people not companies in this country I don't work as a middleman I'm not a broker so I work with indigenous people in the country of origin that we're visiting who who for me are the best custodians of this planet who are the real conservationists and really it's down to them what 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 we save and what is left, I, I think, and I think more credence should be given to indigenous people. I can promise you, I've been to these places, and without local conservationist indigenous people, there would be nothing left. Mm. And I, you know, I like to I, I like to help people, should we say? And I think wildlife, for me personally, not just through coronavirus and where everybody's been woken up by what we've done for, to nature and they've answered back. But I've always known the beauty of wildlife without being able to put a name to it or a, a label. It kind of all fits up. So my message is you don't have to be a soldier and a sniper to be a photographer. You don't have to have a, a different background than I did. If you're honest... And if you learn about wildlife and have a determination and just enjoy what you do, then for me, anything really is possible. When I've been in Sumatra and in India, I've, I've always tried to help the forest guards. I get out my jeep, I shake their hand, we have a cup of chai, I sit with them. I don't want to sit with Westerners looking at receipts or playing Facebook or other. I, I, I want to hear what local people are doing. And I think over the last decade, I, I've got, I, I'd, I'd like to think I've got some respect from people that I uh, that are friends abroad, and that people comment, people sort of help me on these trips. Yes.
0: So, I mean, obviously, we've heard that you've grown up with nature. We've we've known about that time when you picked up the camera, and it was after you became redundant. Do you think if you hadn't been made redundant, you would have taken on your dream, or would it still be in the background? Would you have still continued with the work that you were doing at the time?
1: But I think at the time, if I'm honest, it's such a question, uh, such a good question. It's almost stopping me in my tracks because I'm a great believer and things happen for a reason. I'm not religious. I uh, think of my mom and visit her grave and you know pay my respect. To me, it's about respect. I'm not religious, but I do believe in things happen for a reason. And do you know what? I, co- I couldn't honestly say yes or no to that question. I would still have my little bird guide and binoculars and rucksack and cold toast and go out and have my little encounters with birds and nature. But would I be photographing it? Because then I brought one of, you know, I brought a lot of my camera equipment with what money I'd saved and been sort of given as a, you know, a redundancy package. I was self-employed, so it wasn't a great deal, but uh, it, was, it, was, it was good money that I was like rope access uh, and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it's made, a, made a making a comeback now when I see rope access people. You know, I used to industrial clean windows and stuff like that, you know, hanging off a rope. It was very good. But do you know what? I've I, I got to be honest. If I had to be made redundant, what I'd be doing, what I'm doing now, I, I, can I just, uh, am I allowed to say that I, I just think things happen for a reason?
0: I think I think that's a wonderful thing to say and I think actually you know when when I contemplate what the brave moment means the podcast is called the brave moment because uh a bit like yourself I put myself in a position where I took the plunge with with something and I absolutely believe in that thing that everything happens for a reason. And sometimes it's, it's just about timing, isn't it? It's about the synchronicities that happen in your life. And, um, yeah, yeah. and, uh, needless to say, I'm really, I'm really pleased <laughs> that you got made redundant because else the world would be missing your wonderful, wonderful pictures. What, what do you think it is that you're trying to capture in your photos?
1: An innocence, a beauty, a contact and an encounter. When we were in the forces, if you came across the enemy, you'd have to engage, and it was called first contact. And when we heard an officer shout first contact in various different theatres that I went to, you would not think you'd just automatically do what what you've been taught and that's what the army tries to do it drills you to such an extent that you won't ask questions you'll just do And, and i i i did that with great great ease so that first contact is something that i use quite a lot in talks and pitches and it's kind of strange that i i make that comment now because when i come when i enter the theater of wildlife and I'm on my own, and I've worked out where the light is, and I've had a little smell, see what's around, see if the fox, badges, I've looked for for footprints. And then once I come across something, there's that first contact. It's where a wild animal meets a human being for the first time, and there's that little period of a few seconds where is that subject frightened by me? Will it move? Will it fly? So I just literally pause and stop. And if that first contact progresses, a mutual trust orchestrated by the uh, the wild animal, then my photographs capture that really cat, and that for me is my award, that's my tick in the box, and that really is what I'm trying to do, and that is to just to reiterate, I can go anywhere, drop me anywhere into the jungles of, Ara- of looking for orangutans, tigers, or even a male blackbird that. I see every day in my garden. That first contact is priceless. It's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. It's emotional, and it's very, very. It's it, it, it's it's something that I try to capture with my images. Then I try to capture, if I'm given that opportunity, the behaviour, the sleeping, the the the, the behaviour between others. There might be a male and female. So a lot of my pictures, then, I would like to think, are a progression of that first contact. And then that beauty, that innocence, and that unspoke about contract between wild animal and human is then entered into. And that's how I get my work really, Katha, if that makes sense.
0: I think that's absolutely beautiful and, and something that um, I really treasured actually. So um, I walked the length of Great Britain and as I did that, I noticed that as I was sort of stepping into wildlife and I was the only human in that environment, that I really felt that I was stepping into their world. And I think a lot of the time human beings, we feel like it's our world and we're the dominant species in that world and we forget that actually when you're in nature, you You're stepping into someone else's world and there are completely different rules and completely different behaviours that you have to abide by. Um, And it it absolutely, you know, it struck, it strikes my heart to hear you talking about that first contact, that you know, that special innocence, that contract that you have subconsciously or spiritually, if you like, uh, with the animal. Um, so, so thinking about that, I mean, has there been a, a sort of a shoot that you've been on that's been life changing for you? Can you can you remember what that feeling was and and what the animal was that you were taking the picture of?
1: The- there's been a couple. I'm allowed. Am I allowed to have a couple, or does it have to be one? Yeah,
0: go for it.
1: <laughs> I've always been fascinated with orangutans, and that book that I still have, forty years on, almost. You know, it's not that, not that old, but it's almost that long. To the side, there was an orangutan and a tiger, and I was fascinated. And in, in, in school days, I used to trace around both of them and get told off because you couldn't trace on your books, but <laughs> I kept tracing on my books. Um, again, I didn't know, but. there's there's troubled children you're recreating what's at home aren't you but i didn't know but off you went to dead masters and you got caned but cut a long story short i always had an affinity with tigers and orangutans and when i first you know turned professional i wanted to see orangutans and i learned where are they from because as a boy we all seen clint eastwood films right turn clyde with the orangutan in his cab and he punch or grab things, and there'd be a comical element. We've all seen Planet of the Apes, I think, where there was the aggressive gorillas, the sort of gang-orientated chimps. But then orangutans were always the calm, the clever, the thinking ones that people would go to for advice. So I've always been fascinated with orangutans. So when I turned professional, I wanted to photograph and see orangutans. Now, in the army, I'd been to Belize, I'd been to jungle environments, and I really liked... I like the hostileness of a jungle, but also the beauty it gives, meaning that your personal admin, your navigation, everything else has to be sort of spot on, otherwise the jungle will take over because there are things that can, you know, eat you and just look at you and just think, silly boy. So I love jungles. So jungles weren't really an issue, but then I found out about orangutans and they live on, basically live on two islands, Borneo, Sumatra. So everybody's seeing the babies in the wheelbarrows in Borneo, But very little was being spoken about by Sumatra. And I just thought, why is that? And then I did some of my own investigations. I was thinking, wow, Sumatra has its own tiger. It has its own rhino. It has its own elephant. And it has its own orangutan. It's its own. What I mean is the Sumatran orangutan, the Sumatran tiger, the Sumatran rhino. Yeah. But I was thinking when you ask the average person about orangutans, they envisage Borneo, these rescue centres where you can walk along these sort of rope bridges and visit them, and then you see all the the surrogate parents and all the orphaned orangutans and the wheelbarrows. And they are the Borneo orangutans, which are beautiful, which are under threat. But then I learned about the Sumatran ones, which are more brighter, at first slightly different, they live uh, sort of in a different kind of forest environment, and their islands under threat. So, two thousand and eleven, with the, with the help of a charity, I, I I went to Sumatra for the first time, and again, it wasn't. I didn't want to stay in fancy hotels. I, I I said, you know, I want to work with indigenous people, and I've met some fantastic local people that I'm still in contact with today that ha- as soon as we're allowed to travel, I'll be back with them in their home, homestays, you know, living in my hammock with my mozzie net, just get me some bananas and some starchy rice and I'm fine. <laughs> and I went to Sumatra and because of my climbing, the charity hired me a climber, bow and arrow. They fire the rope up. They, fire, they, they, they do all the rope system. So on that first trip, and I managed to climb up into the canopy of the orangutans because I said that I want to photograph them on their terms. I've never been close to a male. They're a different kettlefish, but a female with a young build a nest, very noisy. They sort of traverse through the treetops so you can hear all the... Ksh, ksh, ksh. So my first, one of my special moments, and I've, I've got a film of it, I, I, I climbed into a tree and there's a young female, some arched and orangutan looking at me. And she sees me, and I see her, and she plays with her foot. She's almost flirting and communicating with me. You'll see She blows bubbles with her lip. She then picks her foot up to try and hide behind it. And I promise you, I'm not no behavioral specialist or scientist. She was communicating with me, and it's about five, six minutes long, and she disappears. Luckily, I didn't take many pictures of that. I filmed it. So I made a short little film of it. So that really is one of the most awe-inspiring moments because I felt just as that first contact. Here I was sitting with a critically endangered Sumatran orangutan, which are down to the last between eight and twelve thousand. They reckon. Gestation period of the female and young is nine years, so they're very slow reproduction rate, should we say? So you know, a lot of those numbers that we talk about have young with them, so they won't be breeding for many years. So they're they're really critically endangered. The Borneo orangutan has now unfortunately been placed on that because of palm oil, but they're not as critically endangered. So here I was in a tree, sitting in the V of the tree, watching this orangutan blow bubbles, play with its foot, and look at me. And it, it almost brings me to tears when I look at it. So there was that occasion, and then much later on, I went to the Indian and Himalayas. It was always a fascination for me to see a snow leopard, <gasps> critically endangered. That, that
0: is one of the animals that I absolutely, my heart sings for the snow leopard. I, I just think it's utterly, utterly beautiful.
1: They're absolutely beautiful. I, I, ran, a, I, ran, I ran a trip with clients. I work with indigenous native people there and we camped there in the middle of Jimenez National Park it's the highest national park in the world it's about 4,300 meters above sea level you've got to stay a bit lower for two days to acclimatize and then we get driven by four fours into this then we walk and then you just look around you see all these mountains and you meet your guides and we were camping and over a period of sort of seven days we saw two snow leopards and because the environment was so tough minus 35 to 40 in the evening and it was cold in the day, but that cold winter sunlight we've had today here in the UK, you know, the, the sun's out, but it's fresh, it's nice. It was kind of like that, and I saw a snow leopard, and that was one of those moments that I still sort of uh, pinch myself. So everything is beautiful to me, should we say, but I think wanting to see the orangutans and then educating myself about Sumatra and the, and the issues that were going on and palm oil and, basically how how i how our high street really you know is plundering these places and what i mean by that is all cheap nasty stuff from where nothing's accountable it's all originates a lot of the time from these places and i just wish people could see that really so i I join all the dots together and it it makes me go back to that first encounter with that orangutan yes i think
0: that I mean, it's lovely to hear, you know, a photographer that's not only just passionate about his subject matter, but also about the conservation elements um, behind the animals that you're you're capturing on on your in your photography. Yeah,
1: I've never, I've I've, I've never stopped to this day. Kat, sorry to interrupt. But I've never stopped almost a decade. I've never ever 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 ever, and I will never stop speaking for the orangutans, speaking for tigers, speaking for even the red grouse in this country that is shot. You know, through through a perverse sort of pastime, I will never, ever, ever stop speaking for those animals that can't. And in this process of not just taking beautiful pictures, but also pictures of things that are not so beautiful, I educated myself and my conservation Message, should we say, was born. But really going back to childhood, I was taught that conservation basically means to care. And if you care about things, then anything is possible. And in an environment that I grew up in, I cared so much for my zebra finches, my mum's dog, Benji, you know, Yorkshire Terry that, that went everywhere in the rucksack with me. So I cared about things. So I understood if people care, conservation is born.
0: I, I really appreciate that. And just listening to you talking about how much... And it's really clear that you care so much about your subject matter. I, I do worry... Um, with, with everyone with their phones with their fantastic cameras on their phones I, I do worry about people that you know I, I saw uh something uh talking about conservation um I saw this awful awful photo of um of people with a baby dolphin uh that was stranded on the beach and instead of helping it back to yeah, the that water was bad. That
1: was, yeah, yeah. they were I've yeah they that. were
0: taking photos of it and that they were just consumed with just having their photo with this animal until it died do do you think there is any hope for the next generation in in that respect I saw that and there
1: was there was there was stuff they they, they, they were were trying to stop it going back to the sea it was shocking I saw that yeah yeah yeah.
0: Um, I mean mean, with 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 people being snap happy and, and obviously seeing the world through a lens now do you think there is any hope for that sort of elevated feeling of conservation and wanting to help and wanting to conserve the life around them or do you think that's kind of dead?
1: For for over 10 years I've spoken about ethics and most wildlife photographers haven't got a clue about what I've just explained to you. They just want to go somewhere, pay £70 and get a, a kingfisher diving into a fish tank that's It's killing, it's taking life base. They they have no time for the sloppy words, not bothered about where you're from, what you're doing. They just want that picture. I see this all the time. I see this on social media. I have to stop myself. You know, some of my friends, uh, one person photographed some snowy owls recently in Canada, and he was really proud about it and thought it was great. And I had to stop myself to say, You've got twenty-six comments, and nowhere in your description have you have you said that a live mouse is thrown out onto the snow. The snowy owl, which is wild, yes, comes down and takes that little gift from you, right in front of paying photographers. Nobody says that, but that's just one example in this country. The the market is saturated. So, from a photography point of view, uh, it often feels a massive, massive, massive uphill struggle. You've got people that are quite well to do and been around 20 years that are still going to places to feed badgers and foxes and kingfishers. Now, people say, oh, you know, you were this, you were that cray. Yeah, we can't all do it your way. But what is my way? My way is just entering the theater. My, my way is just entering the theater of wildlife, listening and seeing what's about, and capturing an actual moment. going back to what you're just saying, I, I think people want their own first contact, but I think they do it at such an expense to, to nature that I think things need to change and I think th- things will only change when from top to bottom, the industry, the governing bodies, the charities set up to protect said animals and birds, magazines, TV channels, documentaries, actually actively take a more proactive stance about ethics, respect, and educate their viewers. And unless that happens from top to bottom, it shouldn't happen. And I mentioned then uh, charities. A kingfisher is a scheduled one. This is just one example. Cat a, a, a kingfisher is a scheduled one. Animal beautiful, a bird, beautiful bird. For seventy to eighty pounds, if you scour the internet, you can have a kingfisher diving underwater and taking a fish. Those fish are taking from taken from their natural habitat. They're placed in a fish tank just under the water, and then some form of prop is placed over the top of the tank, and then. You can get very dramatic pictures. Some kingfishers break the necks, some kingfishers hit the bottom of the tank and are discarded. Now, that's a protected bird. What I try to speak about is this why aren't the RSPB and Natural England outlawing these practices? In today's, uh, I can only speak for the UK a good 70 to 80 percent of photographers don't care about what i've just spoke about they just want the picture put it on bird guides buy some likes buy some comments chase the award and then it almost feels like an acceptance into an into into this world for me my acceptance is that first contact it's all linked but Ethics, respect and field craft is very much something that we should all learn if we enter nature and you don't have to have my background to do that. And how we treat wildlife, I think from top to bottom cat in a nutshell, I think the industry needs to do more.
0: I I just absolutely love what you've just said. I think it's so important, and it does feel like a subject that is taboo still, even in this day and age. And it's lovely to hear someone speaking so openly and honestly about the work that they do. Um, on the on the positive side of the people that you've met through your work, what have you learnt about the people on the ground in the process of of capturing your animals?
1: That they're struggling that they need help, that they need respect, and they need Westerners behind these NGOs that turn up with khaki trousers and a khaki shirt that's just been unwrapped to listen to them, to work with them, and not overpower them. And when I've gone to anywhere or abroad, I've stayed with them, I've been with them, and, it, and you can see that positive effect almost like, this is all we wanted this is all we want you know just just the white man come and just listen if if that's the right thing to say but I think when that changes and we employ local people and empower them to sort of be more custodian to what they know I think things will change Kat
0: It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complex, complicated history, isn't it, at the end of the day that we're, that we're bringing forward today. So what advice would you give to the, to the next generation on conservation? What can they do to really help change things?
1: What advice I would give is if you care about something, things can happen. So if you care about your photography, if you care about nature, your encounters would be better if you care about conservation. Then things happen for a reason. You know, think of certain animals that you love, certain ser- certain subjects that you sort of really loved as a child. Concentrate on them first of all. I didn't use the orangutans or the tigers as a way into this world because I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a lone photographer. I'm part of nobody. I've helped a lot of charities and I still do. But for me, a lot of conservation, as I've said, stifles succession. I'd rather go sit with native people any any day and help them and talk about them, which I often do. So my best advice would be, if you care about something that creates emotion in your heart, that heart then is reflected through your camera. You then take that picture. Your first contact gets better, and then you can use those pictures to better things. If you want to do conservation, sit down, and think, what kind of animals? Oh, I love all animals, but there'll be something that triggers something like with me, the orangutan, the tiger, the tracing around it that I couldn't do. The the birds of prey, the barn owl, the pellets on the on my table, the feathers that I collect there'll be some subject that's staring right at you that you love work on them if it's abroad find out a charity can you do something a lot of charities a lot of conservation are working with next to nothing so you'd need something to sort of work alongside that i've been lucky enough to use my wildlife photography to fund and to work alongside a lot of my conservation stuff, which I donate images, I donate my time, I stand up on the stage. And as you can hear by this podcast, put a mic in me and I can speak A to Z about everything. I use my manners. I'll tell you about anything you want to know and I'll speak from personal experience. So I just think it starts with the person. If you care about something, conservation is born.
0: I love, I absolutely love that. I was going to ask you uh, what you geek out about and clearly it's not your equipment. So what is the thing that just absolutely you you just become obsessed or passionate about or drives you forward into your craft?
1: Uh, Wanting to show, wanting to inspire people with the beauty of nature and showing what beautiful species here in the UK and abroad we live alongside and share share this planet with and the importance of the importance of respecting and caring for them. I know that was long-windy, but it's just really, I, I always try to inspire people with what I see. Because when I was a child, I, I, I'd see things, wouldn't I? And I'd rush back and show the drawings. Look what I saw today, look what I saw today. But the drawings were never... A true reflection. So I think, in a sense, I'm just trying to do that as a photographer now, aren't to, I? To show people what I've seen and what I was lucky with.
0: Mm, mm. I, I love it because so often, you know, people use fancy language and stuff and they don't really connect to the message that they're sending out. And here you are absolutely 100% believing in your craft and believing in your work and and proud of that. And it's really, it's endearing and inspiring to hear about that. Uh, I, I'm just in awe of what you do. I think it's amazing.
1: <laughs> and you and you can you can understand. I'm not joking or or mocking people that want to win something. I understand that they want to uh, be judged by their peers.
0: Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because you're you sort of you shy away from the award side, but actually, yeah. your work's yeah. been it's been featured in some absolutely prestigious magazines uh, and stuff like that, and off but, your yeah, own back. Exactly, exactly, which just goes to prove that if you're passionate about your subject matter, then if you, if that's the thing you think makes it a success for you, then it will come regardless, won't it? Because there's a recognition in the beauty of your photography.
1: This is really funny. On, on my blog, I think the third or the fourth uh, post is Prince for Nature. It's a brilliant idea set up by an American lady, Amy. She's very sort of american very sort of like positive very full full of energy and inject and infectious and she's been with nat geo and her work's really good and she's had some fantastic encounters and she is selling she's 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 asked or, or abundant uh, donated images by 85 of of the world's best photographers they'd like to that they, they, they use that word not me and she, these pictures are sold up until Christmas to help Conservation International. It's a fantastic charity that I've known about before and I've corresponded. They do great work from all over, helping grassroots. They, they are one of you know the, the the most proactive ones, should we say? I, I sort of respect Conservation International a lot. And in the post, you have to get your bio right. <laughs> so I've got an orangutan. I've got an orangutan who's coming out the nest. Who's uh, the sun's just peering through? It's a beautiful emot- emotive picture. Now that's been selected as one of these prints, and it's sold, and it's helping conservation. It's fantastic. It's a great project. Very privileged. Am I one of the eighty-five world's best? Who knows? But the bio. And everyone's National Geographic or award-winning. You can imagine, can't you? 85, they've got letters after the name. They've been everywhere. Who are Cantona? They've got everything. And this is my bio. And it took some time to do, but I was... I didn't have an award, it just basically says Craig's photography, this is what she, they've put Craig's photography covering the plight of the orangutan has been published around the world on the BBC, BBC Wildlife, National Geographic blah blah blah, he works tirelessly to bring about a more ethical approach to wildlife photography and has worked hard to bring the issue to the surface on the Kay Burley show on Sky News on The Guardian he doesn't enter photography competitions so he can't claim to be award winning, he never wants to use that as an unconscious bias his images represented events that occurred in the wild, something that he witnessed and recorded with his camera. His skill lies in interpreting, presenting this in a way that evokes beauty, mood, emotion, and in each moment captured. As an ex-soldier, he tries to help those injured by war or trauma, showing the beauty of the natural world and how it can heal and 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 add such a lot to a person's life, both physically and mentally. He has never forgotten his roots, his late mother, for instilling the beauty of nature into him, his childhood love of wildlife to his work. When I sent that, and they tweaked it, The the lady almost had tears in her eyes. As an American, used to all these award-winning... And she said, it's a breath of fresh air that you are the only non-award-winning and everybody else says that first sentence and people switch off. And I've not done that to be a smarty-pants, Kat. I'm just saying, think about what we've done rather than just an award. And my award is there, isn't it? As an ex-soldier, I help people as as images represent an an event that occurred naturally. Those are priceless.
0: I, I absolutely love that. I'm, and, and one of the reasons why, in particular, I wanted to interview you because I, I wanted someone that represented a field that I was interested in and passionate about in terms of conservation, but really genuinely represented that, that consort of people. Um, and, and of course, you're here.
1: I'd like to think, and it's very nice of you to say that.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask you now if you were to die tomorrow and be reincarnated what three things would you want to take with you either physically mentally or spiritually from this life
1: my animal world book which is signed inside it says to craig happy eighth birthday love mum and dad it's <laughs> it's uh written in my mum's name but again my looking back now is now that my mum signed for his name because uh, she was protecting me didn't really want to know it wasn't love mum and dad but it was love mum so that book i've still got smells all parchment paper um i've got a signet ring that I don't really wear. But in the 80s, when I went to St. Ives on the hill by the church, on the corner there was a uh, – it's not there now because I went a few years ago. On the corner, it's a bric a brac shop now. But in the 80s, late mid to late 80s, it was a silverware shop. And round the corner is a nice restaurant, the Alby and then there's the uh – lighthouse place so that should uh, hopefully if you know saints house so on the corner i've got a silver signet ring that was brought for me when i was about 11 or 12 that doesn't fit so i've got that and my mum brought me that and my third thing would be um i don't know cat i think i probably think another one of my books because i've kept a lot of my books i've got my first bit my bird guide at 11 so probably a couple of books and this signet ring and then and then off i go
0: if you had a spirit animal, what would it be?
1: The wolf. I love the wolves. They are a protector because I feel very uh, – from childhood, I've always been, been a bit of protector, protected friends, protected people, protected things. I think there's a very protective nature to me. Wolves work in a pack. they have sort of hierarchy, very sort of intelligent, very clever, very family-orientated um, and you know, f- fearful of nothing, and but can be very passive, but can also sort of, like I say, that that fear of nothing can bring down animals twice their size working together. Yeah, the wolf.
0: I love it. Do you know what, when when I was uh, spending some time in Scotland, I went uh, to this museum which is dedicated to the embo fishing. Uh, way of life the historical ember fishing and they had this beautiful film uh, which was made about the wolves that used to live in scotland and how when they lived there the balance of nature was so much better and then obviously they ended up killing them off and and the nature of the landscape completely changed it was unbelievable. And that's really stuck with me, that film. I ended up buying it at the end because I was so touched by it and, and in awestruck at how, you know, how delicate that balance is. And then all of a sudden, you know, you take one animal out of it, one that we consider scary or a predator to humans and the whole nature of the landscape changes. It was utterly just eye-opening
1: they've done a film about what you've just said about yellowstone i don't know what it's there but it's about how wolves change the landscape and it's narrated by that very clever sort of guardian writer in this country uh, george mombart is his name and he narrates this and this says how wolves when they reintroduced back to yellowstone how they changed everything wolves are very clever and they, they, they do a lot more what people think
0: oh absolutely check that out so talking about um sort of like the more spiritual connection with animals have you ever had um a connection with an animal on a shoot that that in that moment you communicated something between you uh be that emotional or spiritual connection and and what did you learn from that experience
1: i think it would have to go back to the orangutans again because on the on that first trip i i I climbed a lot of the time into the canopy and I just sat opposite orangutans. And there's a, another orangutan picture, which I wouldn't dare to say is famous, but it's, it's well known. It's a very close picture of a orangutan face and you see all the textures and little tiny hairs and she's looking to her left and she's looking watching her baby play just out of shot and because i was using a long lens and balancing i just wanted to get a close-up picture of her face but i watched how the mother was with the young and it was just it 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 was just sort of so very sort of human-like and so beautiful and she allowed me to watch this because orangutans normally eat and move on they bend the trees down, use the weight, very very clever, they they go to the fruit they uh, eat the fruit and then move on but she sort of stayed there watching me, watching her and she allowed me to be not too dangerously close but close proximity to a youngster and I'm not talking we're still sort of 50, 60 maybe even longer metres away but that's kind of to being close to a baby being uh, playing so that was one of the another encounter. But I, I think all animals, you know, from water bowls to, to, to blackbirds, I, I cherish that first contact. But I think orangutans evoke such emotion. There's, there's basically, what, just over 3% DNA between us and them. And without me sounding sort of dramatic, look what humans have done with that 3% that have made us the way we are when we think that how orangutans are, and they're only 3% behind us. Now, there's no scientific evidence to that. There's no wording, but I'm putting it in layman's terms. There's 3% that separates us to orangutans. And look what we've done as a race with that 3%.
0: Obviously, the show is called The Brave Moment. So I'm really, really interested. What would you consider to be your bravest moment? And is that either in your work or in your mindset or in your heart?
1: Uh, It's going back to something I've touched on. And I've thought about this because I've seen many things in my life where my legs have shaken and where I've been frightened. But then I've taken a deep breath and walked forwards into that Shaking, should we say, uh, from uh, my experiences in the jungle, coming up against nasty people, from being homelessness when I left the, har- the army, uh, stuff that I saw in the forces and childhood. But I don't want to call it my bravest moment, cat. but the moment that I use is when I looked after my mum and if I can be as brave as she was, and a brave as that that time, then that gives me strength to do whatever I want. I don't I, I don't morbidly think of that encounter all the time, but that sort of embossed it into me, that strength. So in, in my life, uh, as a soldier in lots of things, I've seen lots of things where one or both of my legs have shaken, and I've been frightened, but I've taken a deep breath, and I've walked into that shaking, as I call it, meaning going forward. But for me, as as a as a man, as a, as someone that still has the embers of childhood um, burning inside me, it was unfortunately when, uh, through no fault of my own, I became uh, one of my uh, my mum's carers, and just touching on this, which gives people hope, we we are all traumatised really by life. Some of us from wrongdoings, others from unprocessed pain and sidelined emotions. Whatever we do, healing is our responsibility. Cap, because if it isn't, then an unfair circumstance becomes an unlived life. And ever since that childhood, I've tried to live a lived life, but that trauma has followed me. So that's where that brave moment, should we say, would comes from, because. I've tried my best to tackle those traumas and and make an unlived life livable. Nature has helped that. Physical fitness has helped that. Structure has helped that.
0: I think it's, you know, it's absolute testament to your honesty. Um, And also the fact that your trauma is a part of your story that you're not afraid to talk about. And that's brave in itself because so many people let their trauma define them. But here you are utilizing it and expressing it. And from that, like you said, you've taken an unlived life and you've made it livable. And I think that in itself is testament to bravery. I
1: just, you know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful. I'm very positive that I'm alive on paper, I shouldn't be alive because one or two of those events that I've seen in my life should have made me a drunk, an aggressive person, or a, a substance abuse, lots of things. You've seen the programs. You've seen the documentaries, unfortunately. All people, do, oh, people don't follow that, that, that way, but we let that unlived life and that pain govern us, don't we? And what I did, I joined the Army at sixteen. I was frightened. I uh, use physical fitness, structure, and nature to, to survive. And I still use those things today. But, you know, it seems a little bit more fashionable now to speak about it. But I'm not talking about it because of that reason. I think it's very much linked to everything all the way down to how you take a picture in ethics. And, you know, we all have a duty of care to what we live alongside in this planet to, to look after it. We were last in line on the evolutionary track. We were the last of the party. We'll have to revolve and look what we look what we've done.
0: So To finalise everything that you've said, um, and and I think it's really important for people that have been in your position or maybe are in your position now as young carers or people that are maybe in a, a, a home situation where they feel that they just can't have a different life or they just can't afford to dream of something bigger than where they are. I mean, what... What would you say if you if you have one thing to say to everyone that thinks that they can't achieve their dream no matter what that is what would you say
1: follow what you care about follow what you believe in i was always taught always used to your manners and never be scared to ask for things and i've always grown up asking for things being inquisitive always using my manners i think you should Never so, never give up. I, 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 had that instilled in me as a young child to never give up. But if, it, if, it, if, if this helps, find a green space, find some countryside not not far from where you are, and go out before first light. If you if you're under eighteen or sixteen, whichever the 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 law is now, get permission, and go for a walk because that first two hours of every day, and those last two to to, to one hour of everyday nature is at its most active, its most vocal, its most beautiful, its most busiest. Animals are waking up, the night shift, the badgers, the foxes, the raiding bins, that's all stopped. And then all the night all the morning wildlife is coming out. So if and when you can, whether it's even even in an urban environment, go for a walk just before sun. Rise, find out where this you know, the sun, sunrise time. Get up, get out, and 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 go for a walk and and and, and see what's around you. And, and that always helped to me. I used to use, I used to have a bike as a child. I used to always go on my bike, so I used to visit a lot of places. But never to give up. Always care about things. Use your manners never 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 to things will change things will get better and just like i said earlier i i've been frightened a lot of this a lot of times in my life and one or both of my legs have shaken i've just taken a deep breath and walked forward and when you walk forward you find a peace and and a quiet uh, it, within that fear within those legs shaking and it's 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 a place that's very beautiful it's a place that's you you know is as surreal and that's that's what I've done. I've been there. Uh, I'm uneducated on paper. I've got no I've got no uh, qualifications. I left school with nothing. I've never uh, I'm not award winning, but hopefully my pictures inspire, my message inspires. And I've never forgotten, just like in that description, that's an America, he's never forgotten his roots. And I think that's very, very important today. Forget the filters. Forget the pictures, forget the likes, never forget your roots. Always, you know, look after your family if, 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 if you have one. And let nature come into your, uh, your life. And what I'm trying to say is you will find a peace somewhere. You will.
0: I love that advice and, and it's so genuine and so touching. So, thank you so much for, for leaving us on that note. Um, if people want to get in contact with you or, or check out your work, where can they find you on social media?
1: So, if you go to my website, it's Craig Jones Wildlife Photography. Um, I always get back to people if they email because I remember when my inbox was empty over 10 years ago, no one got back. So I do get back to people. I'm a bit of a chatterbox on the phone. If somebody wants to ring me, no questions too silly, silly. but mainly throughout social media, I, I still go under the same name, Craig Jones Wildlife Photography, but on Twitter, it's Craig Jones 17. Basically, if you Google Craig Jones Wildlife Photography, You'll see. If anybody's got any questions about gear, I'll just sort of say, I'll just take a picture of my heart and send you that. But (laughs) on a a genuine note, I do get back to people because when I started out, I remember what effect it had when these professionals I I so-called looked up to never got back to me. So that's where that's where you can contact me.
0: Thank you so so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and, and hopefully we'll catch up again sometime. Thank you for
1: inviting me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for not interrupting because sometimes I I forget my ebb and flow because my brain's working. But it's been a pleasure to help. I like the the the, the, the podcasts you do, and I think they're very good. And I hope this helps people uh, in many ways. So thank you very much, Kat.
0: Thank you. Craig's story is a captivating one. To know that this incredibly passionate and generous man has known such a great deal of trauma is so heartbreaking to hear. But nonetheless, instead of allowing the trauma to define his life's course, he has instead allowed it to fuel his journey. And what he has learned in pain, he has applied in his creative approach to studying wildlife. Trauma is a cross to bear that is always a part of who you are. But it is how you learn to carry it that allows you to find a peace with it. Craig's mother's memory, everything that she protected him from, everything he learned in the family home, Craig has adapted into that first important contact with an animal. As he says, he became an acute observer, he anticipates shifts in body language, he knows how to approach silently and he has learned a kind of invisibility that allows him to gain a trust with wildlife that other photographers have to learn instead of instinctually feel. I love how his attitude to fear is to keep moving forward into it and through it, even when his legs have been shaking, and that because of this attitude, it allows him to move his personal comfort zone forward and expand with him. Craig has never wanted an award for what he does, preferring to make beautiful connections with local people, charities and fellow photographers, inviting people openly and honestly into his world instead of creating what some might consider professional boundaries where others may feel inferior or intimidated by someone's accolades. Because he remembers what it was like at the beginning to not be seen by those he held in high regard, his personal ethos is to encourage contact and embrace all, no matter their story or where they come from. His own personal award system lies in being respected by those whose lives he gets to change or inspire. He openly talks about subject matter which provokes and sometimes divides opinion. The taboo subject of staged wildlife photography, where some chase the picture in a procured, unnatural setting instead of caring about the animal itself, is a highly sensitive subject, which Craig is unafraid to expose, and rightly so, favouring to tell people about the damage it can do to the photographic community, and more importantly, to the animals themselves. I love that Craig would rather visit the wild homes of these animals in disguise at a distance as not to disturb the peace of natural habitat than sit comfortably and pay someone for an experience posing as wild. Craig is also not shy about making new friends in the indigenous people of countries he visits. He actively seeks opportunity to learn from the local community and prefers to stay with them, supporting these local families and therefore the local independent economy. He is deeply passionate about conserving the environment and animals he encounters and again pushes the boundaries of conversations so that we can learn the unappreciated truth about our planet's true identity and crisis in the field. As a consequence, as Craig says, the only equipment he needs to capture such profound beauty or stark truth is his heart. He believes that no matter what you have to hand, if you believe in something, if you are kind and if you use your heart, anybody can capture a great photograph. It doesn't have to be a wild tiger or impressive lion or be in an impressive location. It could be the blackbird that visits your garden or the deer that visits the local fields. He suggests getting into nature at first light or just as the evening begins to start your journey into understanding your local environment and seeing it at its most active. Nature can be something that saves you if you let it. It can be your best friend, your free therapist and your recovery. It can heal, reinvent and renew you All it takes is the courage to step outside and embrace it wholeheartedly. And if you can't leave the house for whatever reason right now, find a book that will show you the world of wildlife. Learn to draw it and marvel at what we have. And just like the book that Craig was given by his mum when he was little, it might just inspire a whole new way to see the world. As Anthony Douglas Williams says, we have more to learn from animals than animals have to learn from us. So maybe, in trying to understand and protect them, we can finally learn how to protect and embrace ourselves. Join us next week when we speak to storyteller, activist, and world-changing mischief-maker Brian Fitzgerald from the amazingly ethical creative agency Dancing Fox. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show if you have a spare moment now please like subscribe and tell me your thoughts in a review on apple podcasts which will really help other people like yourself to find the show of course you can also share the show with your friends by following us at the brave moment podcast on facebook instagram and youtube or on twitter at moment brave or just follow the link tree on all of our social media platforms it's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again Please get in touch with your own stories. And remember, your brave moment starts now.